Okay, so I'm going to give um, a brief background on obesity, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about my research trajectory path and how I've gotten to where I am now um, with terms of what I'm doing research-wise. Then I'll also talk about some future directions that I hope to work on here. So as most of us know, obesity and overweight is a problem. Two-thirds of um, adults are either overweight or obese. And the latest figures that just came out show that one in 10 kids aged two to five are obese. So it's you know, going to be a problem for a really long time and an important issue to work on. And obes obesity increases our risk of several chronic diseases, type two diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, and also um, several cancers have been linked to obesity. So one of the things that I enjoy about working on interventions for weight loss is that I feel like it's able to target several different chronic diseases at, at the same time. So here's the latest map that came out um, on obesity rates. And now not one state is below 20% rates of obesity. So Colorado was our last holdout of under 20%. And now they're... they're uh, um, in the in the 20 percent range and when i um gave my job talk south carolina was still in the 25 to 29 percent but just got bumped up to the 30 percent or greater so um a good time for me to arrive here so that's good um so just a little background on sort of where I got to um, the research that I do now. Just for my senior thesis as an undergraduate, I began getting interested in technology and how it could be used. And um, my degree was um, an interdisciplinary studies degree where we created our own major. And I focused on um, psychology and sign language because I wanted to be a psychologist for deaf children. And so I looked at the ability to do um, sign language and counseling sessions over interactive television. And then when I went on to get my master's degree, decided I was more interested in nutrition and that's the, the way I wanted to go. Um, I looked at the same sort of um, interactive technology but looking at it doing nutrition counseling and education. So after I um, got my master's degree, I went out into the world of working as um, a clinical research coordinator and got very interested in looking at um, dietary approaches to obesity. So if we think about different ways that we can approach the obesity problem, um, one way we can think about it is looking at different dietary approaches to help people lose weight. And one of the particular dietary approaches I've been really interested in are um, vegetarian and vegan diets. Um, and that's mainly I got interested back in um, the 90s when Ornish was doing his work, Dean Ornish had shown that you're able to reverse heart disease by using a plant-based dietary approach. And this study came out um, a couple years ago now where it looked at different dietary patterns. And it was interesting because it really broke it down by vegan, lacto-ovo-vegetarian, pesco-vegetarian, so people who are vegetarian but eat fish, semi-vegetarian, so the white meat eaters, and then non-vegetarian, and showed that there was a corresponding increase in BMI um, with each of these increasing adding animal products to the diet. Um, and that corresponded with um, prevalence of type 2 diabetes as well. So um, when I started looking at some research areas with my first job, um, I was interested in looking at does a transitioning to this plant-based dietary approach um, help people lose weight um, more so than our standard sort of low-fat diet. So the first study I worked on um, was with 64 overweight postmenopausal women, and they were randomly assigned to either follow a low-fat vegan diet or a control diet. 
Um, and it was a 14-week study. We held their exercise levels constant. And we brought them in. We did cooking demonstrations. We told them how to plan their meals. We taught them how to eat out at restaurants. And we gave them nutrition information. Um, the diets that we used, low-fat vegan diet was very low-fat, 10% calories from fat, 15% protein, and 75% carbohydrate. And our control diet was the National Cholesterol Education Program Step 2 diet. It's now called the TLC diet. So the standard sort of using the palm of your hand to determine how much meat you should have, um, less than 30% of calories from fat, 15% um, protein, and 55% carbohydrate. And what we saw at 14 weeks is that um, participants on the vegan diet lost significantly more weight, 13 pounds, um, compared to 8 pounds on the step 2 diet. So I was interested in, you know, we can show a lot of short-term weight loss, but what happens um, out further in terms of weight loss maintenance? And so we published a study um, looking to see um, how the effect of a low-fat vegan diet compared with the step 2 diet on weight loss maintenance. Um, we measured weight at one and two years, and what we found is that uh, participants who were on the vegan diet had lost significantly more weight at both one and two years. So even at two years out, they were so, still um, about seven pounds down from baseline compared to two pounds, um, which most weight loss maintenance studies show a pretty rapid regain in weight. So um, it was impressive they were able to um, maintain that amount of weight loss that far out. So during this weight loss study, we noticed some um, improvements other than weight loss. We noticed that um, not only was there weight loss, but there was also um, some improvements in insulin resistance. None of the participants were um, diabetic, but they um, had some insulin resistance and also glucose tolerance. So we um, put in for funding from NIDDK and did a randomized clinical trial comparing um, the same dietary approach, um, but we added low glycemic index to um, the dietary portfolio of the vegan diet, and we compared it to the current American Diabetes Association guidelines. And this was a 22-week study with one-year follow-up, and our primary outcome was A1C, but we also looked at weight loss and some other outcomes. And it was all adult participants with type 2 diabetes. And when we looked at weight loss, we didn't see a statistically significant difference when we had all participants combined. The vegan group lost 13 pounds and nine and a half in the ADA group. Um, however, during when you're working with participants with type 2 diabetes and you're doing a dietary intervention, often they have to change their diabetic um, diabetes medications, which can alter the effect of, um, can affect their weight loss. And so when we look at just participants who had no changes in their diabetes medication, um, we saw uh, twice as much weight loss in the vegan group as compared to the ADA diet group. So there are lots of different dietary approaches we can do for weight loss and lots of studies that have looked at um, different ways that we can help people lose weight in terms of macronutrient profile. Um, and some of the things that I've really been interested in is, you know, there are lots of ways we can get people to lose weight, but what's going to prevent long-term chronic disease, um, you know, years on, on ahead? And also adherence. So we can have a great diet, but if no one can do it, it doesn't really matter how good the diet is. Um, and also acceptability. If people like it, that's important as well. So one of the studies that I looked at was using the alternate healthy eating index um, and measuring that on the diets in our um, diabetes study. And we've, the alternate healthy eating index was designed by researchers at Harvard. 
and it's a predictor of risk of cardiovascular disease and other major chronic diseases. And it basically scores the diet on different dietary components such as servings of fruits and vegetables, nuts and soy protein, ratio of white to red meat, cereal fiber, trans fat, and um, the ratio of polyunsaturated to saturated fat. And the interesting thing about being able to look at dietary quality in randomized controlled trials is that we're able to actually look at changes in nutrient intake um, in a very controlled setting and also examine nutrient adequacy. So when we looked at the um, AHEI score of the participants in our study, we found that the vegan group had a significantly greater increase in their AHEI score where the ADA participants really had no change. And what this really reflects is the ADA diet is about limiting the calories, but not necessarily the, the type of foods that are used in the diet as much. So the, um, the type of foods were not changed in the diet, just sort of the quantity. So looking at dietary adherence and acceptability um, of both the trials that I worked on, um, looking at adherence, um, one in two year adherence for the weight loss trial was 61% vegan, 55% uh, of the step two diet. And then looking at the diet, uh, diabetes trial at 22 weeks, 67% of vegans reported adherence compared to 44% of ADA, and then about 50-50 out at 74 weeks. So relatively good adherence and not different than um, the, the standard comparison diets that we've used. Um, a lot of people also ask about hunger, that you know, if I were on a vegan diet, I'd be hungry all the time. So we measure that and we found no differences in, in hunger ratings and also dietary acceptability. So we use dietary acceptability scales. Um, the one exception that we see is food preparation, that vegan participants tend to rate food preparation as more difficult than the standard diets we've used, particularly in the beginning when they're having to learn a whole new way of, of cooking and making foods. So some of the appeals um, for uh, using plant-based diets for weight loss, um, we have a real difficult time getting participants to self-monitor their calorie intake. So standard behavioral approaches tell us that we need to have participants track down everything they eat or drink over the day in order to monitor how much they're taking in. And there's very low adherence to that in most every behavioral weight loss study. Um, and the appeal of this is that it's very low in energy density. They're able to eat till they're full, but they're not having to count um, fat grams or calories or carbohydrate grams. And it's also low burden on a researcher in terms of not having to come out and have do individual counseling for individual meal plans. Um, and that the AHEI score um, improved um, is a predictor of future cardiovascular disease risk. Um, and this was just a study done by Ma and colleagues that looked at um, AHEI score by different dietary profile. Um, and again, they looked at uh, the Ornish diet and it had a significantly higher AHEI score than um, the high protein type diet plans on there. So after I finished working in this clinical research setting, I decided I wanted to go back and um, get my PhD and really wanted to focus on the area of delivery methods and getting back into the technology side of things that I had done as an undergraduate and master's student. And so I was interested in looking at emerging technologies for weight loss. Um, one of the first studies I did was um, looking at a study called Nutrition Information to the Desktop, and it was a pilot study where um, I created an online lesson about decreasing saturated fat intake, and it was delivered to librarians and library paraprofessionals through um, an online learning portal called Library Education at the, the Desktop.
And I got interested in looking at libraries as a possible setting to do a behavioral um, or public health outreach was because um, research had shown that participants were coming in or patrons were coming in and asking librarians for health-related information, um, but librarians were unsure about how to find that information for them. And so um, one of the articles I had read said that the next step was to provide this web-based train-the-trainer course for public librarians on health issues. So the goal of the course was to help librarians know how to find health-related materials for patrons. And this was particularly around the issue of reducing saturated fat intake. Um, 100, 100 uh, librarians um, consented and completed the course. They did a pretest. They, they then completed an online lesson. They did a post-test, and then we contacted, contacted them six months follow-up to do a survey looking at attitudinal changes and use of the information in the lesson. Um, when we looked at knowledge score pre- and post-test, there was a significant increase in knowledge around the topics that we had discussed in the course. And we also looked at self-efficacy. We asked them how confident they were in their ability to help patrons with health-related issues. And we saw a significant increase in self-efficacy from um, pre to post-test and pre to follow-up. Um, expectancies, we asked them how much they valued helping pa patrons around health-related issues. And we found no difference between um, any of the time points. And really, I think this was because there was a ceiling effect. They came in already value valuing um, wanting to help people around this issue. Um, so beyond just looking at delivery methods, um, because I had started taking courses in behavior theory, got interested in how we can apply some of these health behavior theories to some of the technology that can be used. So right around that time, um, mobile technology started becoming popular, um, and I was listening to a lot of podcasts on my bus commute, and so got interested in looking at using mobile technologies um, for interventions. And so um, podcasts uh, comes from a hybrid of the terms broadcast and iPod, and they're audio files that can be downloaded or listened to to um, any computer or also any MP3 player. So the study I did for my dissertation was called the Pounds Off Digitally Study, and it was to determine whether podcasting weight loss information could be an effective way to promote weight loss um, and improve diet and physical activity, and it was a 12-week intervention with adults. And I compared an existing weight loss podcast, so one we found that was popular, um, out uh, available on iTunes to an enhanced theory-based podcast. So the theories used in the design of the podcast, the first main theory I used was social cognitive theory, um, and that says that people learn through their own experiences and observations. But I also drew on theories from the communication um, literature, such as user control theory, which says if you give learners more control over their learning environment, that will assist with um, better learning. And cognitive load theory, which says if you can reduce the cognitive burden someone experiences while learning, that can also lead to more effective learning. And um, the elaboration likelihood model, which says that greater elaboration or the more we think about something can lead to um, more uh, lasting changes in attitudes and behaviors. This was the conceptual model I had for the study. Um, I hypothesized that uh, greater user control and decreased cognitive load and increased elaboration would be felt by participants who got the enhanced podcast that I was designing. That would lead to increased knowledge about how to achieve weight loss, um, leading to greater self-efficacy. Improved outcome expectations would also happen with improved expectancies, leading to changes in the behaviors that we would want to see to um, help people lose weight.
So this is how each of the different sections of the podcast were targeting different social cognitive theory constructs. Um, each podcast had different sections to it and in order to target these different constructs. So there was a nutrition and exercise portion um, of the podcast which targeted expectancies or how much um, people valued weight loss. Expectations was targeted through an audio diary, so it alternated between a man and a woman who were trying to lose weight, and so it allowed people sort of this firsthand experience of what to um, expect from trying to lose weight. Self-efficacy or confidence in weight loss or ability to lose weight was um, targeted through a goal to achieve. At the end of every podcast, we set a goal and we started sort of m with very minimal goals to build up their confidence as we went along. And then behavioral capability was targeted um, by the nutrition exercise information, and there was also a continuing soap opera on the podcast that helped people um, enhance behavioral capability, but also um, the soap opera was an entertaining way to bring people back for another um, podcast episode. So participants in the study were randomly assigned to either the enhanced theory-based podcast or the control podcast. Um, which we had done a content analysis of weight loss podcasts, and this one received the highest score. And it focused on cognitive restructuring, think fit, be fit was their motto, and they focused on things like goal setting tips and types of exercise. So overweight men or women, and men and women were recruited to the study. It was 12 week with 24 podcast episodes. Um, we excluded the usual suspects here um, and included people. They, everyone had to have their own MP3 player to join, and they had to have a body weight scale so they could um, self-monitor their weight. So we collected um, demographics, height and weight, fruit, vegetable, and high-fat food intake using the Prime Screen questionnaire, physical activity using the short IPAC, and then we also measured imp information processing variables such as elaboration, um, user control and cognitive load. This is a screenshot of the website. Participants could um, log on, they'd get study information, they could um, link to the podcast there, and in the upper right there there's a um, journal that they would click on and um, log on to that every week and uh, tell us how many podcasts they had listened to and what the topics were as a way that we could track um, what they were doing with the study and how many they were listening to each week. Um, these are baseline demographics. There uh, were no differences in baseline demographics between the groups. They were mostly in their late 30s, mostly um, women, mostly um, white women in the study. And when we looked at changes in weight um, and BMI at 12 weeks, the yellow there is the enhanced podcast group, and they lost um, significantly more weight at um, the 12-week mark than um, the control group and had a corresponding drop in BMI of about one point compared to 0.1 in the control group. They also, the enhanced group also had um, reported greater increases in vegetable and fruit consumption, but we didn't see a difference in any high-fat food categories. They also reported um, greater increases in vigorous physical activity, um, number of days per week, than the control group. Uh, we didn't seem to impact um, significantly moderate activity or walking um, or a number of hours sitting per day. And the podcast mainly focused on walking as a type of um, physical activity. So it was interesting that they didn't seem to um, affect walking, that they actually got out and did more vigorous activity, or at least what they reported. Um, we also saw greater elaboration, user control, and cognitive load. 
um, in the enhanced group. They also rated um, the intervention better. They liked it more. Um, but the number of podcasts that they reported downloading didn't differ um, between the groups. And so what's really important here is that the, uh, the exposure was the same. They were getting the same um, podcast, but what possibly was differing is some of these information processing variables where we saw the, um, the differences between the groups. So some strengths to this study, it was a randomized design and intention to treat analysis and um, also highly applicable outside the research setting. They came in at baseline in 12 weeks. We didn't do anything with them in between. Um, they prepared all their own meals. They found their own ways to do physical activity. Um, and it was also very low cost and would be an easy dis disseminate um, intervention. Um, some of the limitations were it, it's difficult to um, isolate some of the variables of interest. It was short term. The weight losses were modest and there also wasn't any group um, support or interaction. So to address some of those limitations, um, the next study I wanted to focus again on delivery methods and also theory used, but also look at some of this level of contact. The first podcasting study had very minimal contact. I wanted to see if upping some of that contact could help um, enhance the weight losses we saw. So the next study I did was comparing the enhanced podcast, since I know that worked okay. Let's see if we can boost the weight losses. So we compared it to a podcast plus an enhanced mobile media intervention, and then we extended the study to six months, and all participants in the study had to have an Android-based phone, a BlackBerry, or an iPod Touch or iPhone. So participants were randomized to either um, podcast only or the podcast plus mobile. Both groups got twice-weekly podcasts um, for zero to three months, and then they received twice-weekly mini-podcasts um, from months three to six. The mobile group also downloaded an app to their um, mobile device where they could track their diet and physical activity, and they also received group and moderator support um, via Twitter. So all participants in the Enhanced Mobile group um, joined each other on Twitter and we all followed each other. Um, I mainly posted twice a day just sort of push messages that reinforced the topics that were discussed in the podcast um, because I wanted my role to be something we could automate later on, um, whereas participants um, were supposed to engage with one another and um, respond to each other. These are screenshots of the um, app that we use. Participants could track their weight. They could um, barcode scan items and enter them into their food tracking. Um, and then they had sort of a running tally of what they were eating throughout the day. Um, participants in this study were a little older than my previous study, early 40s, um, but again, white females and no significant differences between the groups. And when we looked at weight losses, we saw no differences between the mobile group or the podcast group. Um, so the um, differences weren't significant at three or six months. And some of that um, may have been due to the fact that everyone had a mobile device in this study. And the podcast group, which all received little paper books where they could look up their calorie and fat gram amounts, quickly realized that there are websites and apps that they can download, and why would I use this paper book? <laughs> so um, if you notice the podcast group here, um, the yellow there is a mobile app and web is in gray. And so they may have been at a slight advantage in that they could choose whatever method they wanted to use, whereas we told the mobile group, you have to use this particular app, and I had to choose one that was available on three different platforms. This group could choose any app they wanted. 
Um, and so they, they quickly found out. So what we were left with is that Twitter was the main difference between our two groups. And um, Twitter was not highly utilized in the study. So um, that kind of left uh, a little problem with bleed over between the groups. Um, when we look at days of self-monitoring, um, no difference between the groups at all um, and still very low self-monitoring. So we give them this nice app that they can easily download. They don't have to calculate calories and look things up. And still um, you're looking at less than half of the days per week that they're self-monitoring. Um, and time and time again, we see in every study, this study included, days of self-monitoring is significantly related to weight loss. Um, so they were, they were having very low adherence with uh, self-monitoring. So I want to talk a little bit about um, some future research here and um, some upcoming studies and some things that I have um, in my mind to do. Um, I'm hoping to combine all my aspects of weight loss intervention research while I'm here. Uh, the first study that I'm going to be doing is um, called Healthy Eating for Reproductive Health. And um, I got interested in this because one of the um, chronic diseases that we're seeing on the rise with overweight and obesity is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And 18% um, of women of reproductive age have PCOS, and it's characterized by irregular menstrual cycles or complete anovulation, elevated testosterone levels, and infertility. And women with PCOS are at a higher risk of developing um, cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and type 2 diabetes. So um, previous studies have shown that vegan diets are associated with higher serum sex hormone binding globulin, and um, SHBG tends to be low in women with polycystic ovarian syndromes, and that can lead to higher levels of testosterone and infertility. Um, and since vegan diets are also associated with weight um, loss and improvements in insulin resistance, um, I thought this may be an interesting dietary approach to try with this population. Um, but no studies to date have focused on improving fertility with women with PCOS through a lifestyle intervention. So I was interested in looking at if a low-fat, low-GI vegan dietary approach, similar to what I'd, we had used in the diabetes study, could be an effective way to help women with polycystic ovarian syndrome, help to um, achieve weight loss. I want to look at change in waist circumference. Um, regulation of ovulatory function, improved fertility outcomes, and also looking at measurements of quality of life. Um, and I'm going to compare this with a standard uh, calorie-controlled dietary approach. So I'm um, collaborating with uh, Dr. De Debbie Billings in our department and also Dr. Burgess in the Department of OBGYN. And it's going to be a six-month pilot study in 50 overweight women with polycystic ovarian syndrome. Um, Originally, I had this as randomized 25 to 25 group setting, the way that we normally do behavioral weight loss studies. However, after talking with Dr. Burgess, this is going to be a really difficult population to recruit. Um, there are just not a lot of people within her practice, and so I'm trying to do outreach with other practices. But um, this may be bringing in some of my technology side to this, allow to um, deliver this in a remote manner so um, I can recruit participants um, one at a time versus trying to get a cohort together. So the goal is to collect pilot data for this in order to submit for NIH funding um, and, like I said, currently trying to work out our format. Um, but I'm interested in finding collaborators on campus who are interested in medical outcomes and women's health. Um, 
also looking at changes in environmental or dietary um, contaminants such as mercury and also looking at psychosocial issues of dealing with infertility treatment and also um, looking at effects of dietary intervention. Um, the next study that I'm working on is called Mod Pod um, Mobile Diets for Pounds Off Digitally, um, and I'm submitting it as an R21 to NCI. Um, and it's going to be a six-month pilot test um, of 50 overweight adults. And the main goal of this is to really look at can we, again, enhance the weight losses. Adding the Twitter and the little app uh, for diet monitoring did not enhance weight losses. And so what I'm thinking, again, going back to level of content, is that... Um, one of the things that's missing in this remotely, totally automated delivery is there's no um, feedback given to participants on their uh, weight loss or um, any sort of accountability that they feel. So I want to test if we can add some tailored content based on weight loss through video podcasts and emails and also um, adding some more content through written lessons. So both groups will receive weekly audio podcasts, but the enhanced group will also receive this weekly lesson by email. Um, it'll have some worksheet functions that will allow them hopefully to elaborate a little more on the, the topics from the podcasts. Um, also a tailored email message on their weight loss pattern over the previous two weeks and also looking at their self-monitoring behaviors. And then also adding some video podcasts, because when I first did my podcast study, video podcasts didn't exist. Now they're available. So looking at ways that we can add um, tailored podcasts based on um, their weight loss pattern um, and allowing that to have sort of a personal feel that they're interacting with a um, weight loss counselor. Um, so the goal is to really enhance some of the um, theory constructs that I'd used in the previous study with the enhanced intervention, um, enhancing outcome expectations through the written lesson and also um, a video diary. Um, some of that will include participants who um, are attempting weight loss, so allowing sort of that firsthand interaction with another participant but doing it through video podcasting. Um, Self-efficacy um, targeted through tailored video and email content based on weight loss pattern, um, and that would also target um, behavioral capability as well. Um, and hoping to um, enhance some of the communication theory constructs, user control and cognitive load by allowing um, accommodation of varying learning styles. If we're going to have um, audio, we'll also have video, we'll have written print, um, and also um, hoping that that will help to enhance elaboration as well. Um, in addition, by providing feedback on behaviors, it allows participants to reflect on how they're doing. So some other future studies, this call came out from NIH, um, I think a month ago, and they're looking for um, studies that are going to use mobile health tools to promote effective patient-provider communication, adherence to treatment, and self-management of chronic diseases in underserved populations. So what they're really looking at um, is studies that are using these mobile health tools to improve um, effective patient-provider communication, adherence to treatment, and self-management of chronic diseases. And um, what I'm interested in is thinking about ways that we can use some of these mobile approaches to help physicians in areas of underserved areas or nurse practitioners. They see a patient, and they're able to deliver some of these mobile um, enhancements to them. They're able to push podcasts out to them, and participants are able to you know, respond by sending in weight loss um, uh, results, blood glucose results, 
um, all remotely and using these mobile technologies. <clears throat> and there is big push by NIH and um, HHS to uh, start doing more with these mobile health um, uh, research and um, outreach with uh, participants. Um, I'm going to be speaking at this M Health Summit in December, and the goal of this is to connect researchers with all the other players in mobile health. So we tend to be somewhat isolated from the people that are developing these apps or healthcare professionals that are maybe using them in their practice. Um, so finding a way that we can get everyone together and figure out how can we how can we um, allow us to uh, deliver these in a really effective way to help um, public health. <clears throat> and just last month, HHS announced um, the Text for Health Task Force recommendations. So they've been really interested in mobile health, um, specifically around text messaging interventions. Um, and they are, this task force is charged with identifying ongoing initiatives and proposals for feasible new projects which would deliver health information and resources to users' fingertips via their mobile phones. And their first two recommendations are looking at um, facilita facilitating health text messaging development and then also research and evaluation. Um, and they're particularly interested around smoking, but um, other issues as well. So a lot of stuff is coming out where they're, the, these agencies are asking for more research and evaluation on um, mHealth issues. So if any of this sounds interesting, and you know colleagues who are interested in this, I'd love to work together and um, figure out some ways that um, we can apply for some um, of these interesting calls for proposals that are coming out. That's it. Any questions? I think that goes more on to sort of getting into the policy side, and I'm not sure as much um, if that's what I'm as interested in as much as looking at it as a way to help support people during interventions and seeing if it's a way that we can disseminate some of these um, aspects of face-to-face -face interventions that we normally would do. Um, there, are all, there are people who say that using these social media type aspects in intervention studies are just not a good idea because they're never replicable. You could have a great cohort all interacting with each other. You could disseminate it out and you could get a bunch of people that don't want to get on at all and talk. So it's a very um, difficult portion of your study to um, be able to replicate and, and put out in a larger setting. Um, and it, the Twitter aspect of the study that I did was obviously not the best way to um, deliver social support on that level. I picked it because it tend to skew a little higher in age than Facebook and the other groups, but when I looked at baseline what social networks people were on, everyone was on Facebook, no one was on Twitter, so it was, you had to get over this hurdle of people, I had to t teach them what Twitter was, and we had to get all, everyone had to learn what their Twitter um, username was, 
And so that was a little difficult. And the other problem was my two top weight losers were the most frequent posters to Twitter. So they were posting all the time. I lost two pounds this week. I lost three pounds. And everyone else was saying, oh, I just lost a pound this week. And so they thought that was awful, you know. And so there was some social comparison going on that wasn't necessarily beneficial. Um, so I was hoping the people that felt that they weren't doing so well would post. They'd get the support that they needed. But that didn't really seem to happen so much. So... And one of the things that IRB didn't question me about, and looking back, they probably should have, what happens, I had no plan if someone got on Twitter and just started posting crazy stuff. You know, it was a closed, we were all following each other, but if you have a participant who just starts saying crazy things on Twitter, what do you do, you know? So <laughs> do you defriend them, you know, like what, how do you do this? So there are a lot of these things that kind of, you know, we're catching up on as we, we go along. Luckily, that wasn't the case. All my participants were good, you know, so it was good. Yeah. To take that to a slightly different place, but I think based on the same notion, is that it seems like what you're, what you're doing is very, is very individually focused, and, but there's whole communities of people that are the Southeast community, so, and it doesn't have to be a physical community, so I'm, I'm wondering if, of trying to intervene on existing social networks, whether they're electronic or otherwise. Because you've, you've just talked about what happens when you basically try to create de novo a, a new social network. But what about trying to intervene on groups of people who are already connected? Yeah, that would be something that would probably be more integrated into what people are already doing and comfortable with so you wouldn't have to deal with the barrier of learning a new technology and that kind of thing and also these people would already know each other. Um, I haven't really figured out what those communities would be necessarily that we could get in especially from an electronic standpoint but um, that would get over some of the barriers versus trying to create a social network and people who do social networking research would say that what what I did was not really a social networking study, and I wouldn't actually ever call it that because those people weren't in a social network. They were in a research study connected by a social networking website, you know. So um, I think there is a difference between finding an existing social network and working through them versus um, trying to create one through some of these technologies that we have. I didn't, so this was my postdoc, so this kind of was my formative research, you know. <laughs> so it, it would have been useful to do um, some focus groups asking which way people would like to interact and even doing a run-in of a few weeks with different types of delivery methods. Um, my goal was to have something that um, would be sort of just push message, similar to text messaging. There's been studies that have used text messaging and found that to be beneficial. And a lot of my participants said they would have preferred text messaging because Twitter was another site they had to go to. They often forgot about it. Um, and some of them even set up their phones to text them when Twitter posts because they were forgetting to go. So um, text messaging may have been a, a better way to go in terms of trying to get people to do that. But yeah, I didn't do any tests beforehand what to use.
things like when you look at the sort of E at the end technology and so many things that are out there, they're really devoid of theory. It's more like here's a nutrition database to track or fitness. And um, I think that's great in doing that. It seems like it's really unique and if we can find things like these graphs or better production systems, they're just a fun. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that's one of the things I've tried to guide sort of the research that I've done with technology is to not let technology drive what we're doing, but know that there's theoretical approaches to issues and we can apply technology to that because podcasting could be gone next week and then you're stuck with nothing, you know, but if you know that you've actually impacted different levels of theory, you can apply that to whatever technology you've used. And in fact, the conceptual model that I had put together when we looked at, um, we're, a colleague and I are working on a mediation analysis, and what we found is the social cognitive theory constructs were not coming out as predictors. So they were great at designing the um, intervention, but in terms of self-efficacy being related to outcomes, that wasn't, it's the communication variables that we saw that were really predictive of weight loss. So I think being able to use all those theories together were really useful in, um, providing a framework that I can take forward and apply to other types of interventions. I was just wondering, you know, um, whether this type of e-technology has been applied to low-income population and what is your thinking about in the future? Um, are you going to do that? And if you do that, whether it's feasible, you purchasing from this individual and what's so, you know, any ideas along those lines? So um, the uh, research that's been done on populations that use this technology, Latinos and African Americans actually own mobile devices at higher rates than whites do. So it's a, it's a nice technology to be able to get in with populations that are difficult to reach. Um, so far I've asked people to have their own devices because I've been poor and can't afford to give them. So I'm hoping with some money that would allow me to provide. Um, however, the last, I submitted this R21 um, and the reviewers were not liking um, me having them have their own devices. They wanted me to provide it because they thought it would be a barrier. So um, I have mixed feelings about that because when people have their own devices, it allows them to be comfortable with it and you know, you know that they're okay with using this device. Um, when you give them an additional device, if they already have a device, it lessens their likelihood that they're gonna be using that. So. Um, trying to find ways around it are, are you know, a little tricky. But um, I think in terms of the digital divide, it doesn't seem to exist with these mobile devices as much as it had in the past with, say, desktop computers and internet access. You can use a device and a teenager. Yes. Yes, exactly. I had, I had participants bring in their teenagers <laughs> to help them with downloading Twitter and stuff, so. Yes. <laughs> One question yeah. regarding the, the studies you introduced at the beginning, which is the primary dietary approach, and what do you do with the food activity? Do you track the food activity, or do you know how do you control that change, which is also associated with weight loss? With the dietary changes? Yeah, the weight loss, because the studies you presented at the beginning yeah. are more like you know, kind of a dietary approach. Right. Both of those studies, the weight loss and the diabetes study, weight loss 
we asked them to control, um, to hold their physical activity constant. And we measured it by questionnaire and pedometer, I think. Um, and we didn't see any differences between the groups. So we asked them, whatever you're doing now, keep doing it and don't change it because we wanted to try to isolate the effect of diet. Um, and I think you would see, you know, obviously better results if we increase the physical activity in both groups, but we wanted to just, just look at diet alone as much as we could. No, I haven't looked at that. That would be interesting. I'm looking at now differences in self-monitoring and dietary intake by what they chose to monitor with, so app versus paper versus web. Um, and so far, I'm not seeing a bunch different between app and web, but a lot between paper, not following the diets as much and, and not monitoring as much. So, um, I mean, it's hard because, you know, that's not a random design, so there could be something different about people who choose to use paper. But, um, yeah, I think it would be hard. My ends would get pretty small if I started looking at some of that. But, yeah, you know, they were, they, I couldn't stop them from using whatever they wanted as much as I would like to. Anyway. Oh, thanks.